Okay, let's start off in verse 22. It says this, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. He called to him, and he called them to him and said in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So as Jesus' ministry grows in popularity, he's drawing these massive crowds. No doubt the establishment starts to take notice, right? Um, they get word that this teacher is challenging Pharisees and temple leaders, and he's reported to be performing miracles and even exorcisms, not just a few times, but repeatedly again and again. They're getting multiple reports back to Jerusalem of what's happening in Capernaum and throughout the country. So if we want to put ourselves just for a moment into the, the shoes of the religious leaders, I think we also would want to get some first-hand accounts. We'd want to get some people on the scene to confront this Jesus, to get some first-hand accounts in Capernaum where he's based and see what is actually happening. This teaching and this level of the following that he has has implications for religious and political life. They're living under the Romans right now. And with some understanding between them and the Romans of how they operate around each other. The Romans don't want mobs or uprisings, so they have been cooperating with the Israelite leaders. They have let the Jews practice their religion of one God as opposed to every other religion of that day. And part of their understanding, however, is that they won't create an uprising and they will cooperate with the Romans. All this to say that the Jewish leaders send some delegates to figure out what this teaching is and who this teacher is. That's why in verse 22 it says the de this delegation from Jerusalem, it says these teachers from Jerusalem. So this delegation is what we see in verse 22. It says some of the scribes came down and were saying he himself is possessed by a demon. And that's how he's casting out these other demons. So this group of scribes from Jerusalem are making, I'd say that's a pretty bold statement, right? Uh, they are making statements that he himself is possessed and that the only way the demons listen to him is because he's one of them. It seems that they, they have already made their assessment and they're now making public accusations in front of everyone against Jesus. Now, this is not just a judgment of what's been happening. They're making a judgment of the man himself, Jesus. They, as religious leaders, are making this judgment that he is demonic. They're judging Jesus, who is plainly recognized by the demons themselves as the Son of God, as we read in, in previous verses, on multiple occasions. But these leaders are judging him to be ultimately evil. So why are they doing this? Why are they making this proclamation? 
Well, because Jesus is a huge threat to them, right? They are desperate. They're threatened not only by the crowds that follow him, but by the teachings he is challenging their authority. And the miracles are undeniably real and powerful. So that gives credence to his challenge to their authority. They have positions of power that they worked hard to get and they want to maintain them. They would never believe that this man is the Messiah because he does not go along with their rules and regulations and does not validate them as powerful. Jesus challenges their lifestyle. Sound familiar? Because when you and I look at the same man, when you and I approach this same man, this Jesus, our whole lifestyle, the way that we view everything in this life and the one to come are challenged. He does and should challenge every part of our life. And frankly, if we're honest, we don't like it either. Jesus is both the most challenging and the most comforting person in history. He tells us that we are deeply loved, just right as we are, but he also demands that we change our priorities and our actions. Jesus does both of those things, and that makes us uncomfortable. We want one or the other. This is where we both get liberalism and fundamentalism. If we want to focus on just how Jesus loves us the way we are, but we forget his personal challenges, we're tending towards liberalism. On the other hand, if we instead just focus on the demands for a changed life and changed priorities and forget about his love and radical forgiveness, we lean into fundamentalism. That's why it's so hard to sit in the tension that the gospel gives us because it makes us uncomfortable. We want a Jesus who's predictable. We want a Jesus who we can wrap our minds around. Well, the Pharisees give us a really good example of how we should not react to Jesus in this tension, right? They brush him off. They, they even demonize him. The key for us to see here is that, that something real is happening, but they are going to try and find an explanation and a nonsensical solution that fits into their preconceived judgments. They want things to stay the way that they are, and so they, they come up with an idea that makes sense to them, such as, he is possessed. That's why he's so successful at helping people who are possessed. Now, Jesus, in response to this little accusation that they're making, does something very simple and incredibly effective. He uses logic. He logically asks them, okay, if a kingdom is divided against itself, how does it stand? Is it a good plan to attack your own strongholds? It's just a simple metaphor for the spiritual battle that exists. Why would you destroy territory that you've already conquered? And then he uses a second metaphor that's really incredible. Not just the argument at hand, but for, for, for you and I personally, we need to remember his second metaphor in the text that we just read. It says, he says, the only one who can go into a strong man's house and bind him is someone who is stronger than him. Not just a little stronger. Jesus is saying, I can do as I please even in the home that the devil has made for himself. Jesus is saying, I am stronger 
than all of these demons. There's hope and a good reminder for us in this. This Jesus whom we worship, whom we gather every Sunday morning to worship, is not just a little bit stronger than the evil forces in this world. He is infinitely stronger. We serve a conqueror, king, and lord. And that should be infinitely good news for us. Jesus, still in response to this accusation of the Pharisees, gives one of the most difficult teachings that is recorded in the Bible. At least it is in my book. And viewed by many to be. Let's read verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This idea of the unforgivable sin has been an anxiety for many believers. Uh, and it's usually misunderstood, and it's even... It's even used to manipulate people. Before we dig into the text and in, in, in the context of what is the unpardonable or unforgivable sin, I first want to say what it is not. That's important for us to, to, to walk away with. Uh, because there are leaders or pastors who use this as a way to keep people from questioning their teaching and keep people constantly uh, challenged and worried about losing their salvation. So they, they use this to stop people from questioning them. In other words, they say, the Holy Spirit spoke this to me, and if you question it, you're questioning the direct teaching of the Holy Spirit, and therefore you are in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. That's a really dangerous way to teach this and leaves so much room for manipulation. And manipulation and bullying are what we frankly see a lot of times in many churches. We have to be really careful of this. So, the unpardonable sin is, is not a reason to never question your leaders. You should be able to question your leaders. The other thing I say that it is, it is not something that you may have done accidentally. It's not something you, you can look back and worry about, ooh, did I do this? It's not something you've done accidentally that's going to send you to hell. I think it's one of the ones that haunts people. Maybe they said or did something in a period of rebellion that was unforgivable. It's not that. So Jesus says the unforgivable sin is blaspheming, that is, speaking impiously or, or without respect to regarding the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? So many Christians worry about this one when they encounter it, so we should figure it out what it really is, but not spend too much more time on it than Jesus did. While doing that, however, we cannot, we must not ever forget the context in which Jesus said something. There's some specific context here that, that we'll have to look at. And when I'm struggling with, with a difficult teaching or, or difficult topics like this one, um, I tend to lean on teachers that are much smarter and older and have usually passed away. Um, <laughs> People who have spent their entire lives studying texts like this and can explain it. And, and I'm so thankful for some of those ministries that are out there. J.I. Packer is one of my absolute favorites to be able to, to go back on. So if I'm struggling with something, I'll, I'll look, wait, what did, what did J.I. Packer say about this? Um, 
he has a little book. It's a very small book um, called Concise Theology. He kind of goes through a lot of subjects. And he goes through this one in that book. Very specifically, there's a chapter on it. Um, I'm going to quote Packer here because he says it better than I could. Here's what Packer says about this verse and the parallel verse that we would find in Matthew. When Jesus warned the Pharisees that blaspheming against the Holy Spirit was unpardonable both in this world and in the next, it was because, again, context, because they were saying that he exercised demons by being in league with Satan. His warning revealed his view of their spiritual state. He could, and later did, pray for the forgiveness of those whose blasphemy against him was the fruit of ignorance. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. But that was not how he saw the Pharisees. So in other words, Jesus knows the hearts of men, right? He knew the heart of these Pharisees, and it was intentionally trying to stifle their belief with ridiculous lies. They had hardened their hearts against Jesus and the Spirit's conviction of who he was by the miracles, exorcisms, and teachings that he brought with him. Packer goes on to say this in that chapter. This hardening of heart against Jesus would preclude any remorse at any stage for having thus blasphemed. But non-existence of remorse makes repentance impossible, and non-existence of repentance makes forgiveness impossible. So really what he is saying is, is that the Holy Spirit works on conviction of who Jesus is and what sin and righteousness are. He leads us to repentance. So therefore, impenitence, a lack of repentance, is the only unforgivable sin. People who have committed this sin do not regret it. The context showed us that in, in verse 30, they were saying Jesus himself had an unclean spirit. And that's why he said this. He knew that they knew that he didn't have an unclean spirit. They had hardened their hearts against him. They had no remorse, no repentance, and would not. Or at least they might not yet. This, this text is a warning to them. They were trying to mask their lack of repentance with some ridiculous logic. I think that has been plenty of time on that. This is one sentence that Jesus teaches. If anyone wants to dig into that further, we can look at some books and scriptures together. But let's, for our purpose, keep reading in our text. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came... And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around about at those who were sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Two things we need to talk about in that paragraph. The first is 
is this recognizing the, the cluelessness of Jesus' family. Um, here we actually follow up on last week. If you remember, it ended with his family deciding that they needed to come and the, and the text says seize him or arrest him or take control of him. They had actually bought all the nonsense that, that people were saying he was making a fool out of himself. He was acting crazy. And due to their family honor, they decided to, to come and arrest him, to take control of him, which is what the wording of that text actually means, to arrest. Earlier, we saw the religious elites misrepresenting Jesus. Now we see Jesus' own family was also misunderstanding him, his purpose, and his goals. Now some, especially in the Catholic Church, don't like this because they view Mary as, as perfect. And James, one of the brothers here, becomes one of the most prominent leaders in the early church, as detailed in the book of Acts. If James was a great leader and apostle and, and Mary was God's chosen servant, then why are they shown here doubting Jesus and his actions? Well, because they're people. They're not perfect. They're broken. Yes, they're sinful. They doubt like the rest of us and even Mary doubts at what Jesus is doing. And she saw the angel Gabriel before Jesus was born. But I'm pretty sure that this traveling around and exercising demons and, and traveling around and sitting in a boat and preaching is not what she expected either. Jesus is challenging the very religious leaders that Mary no doubt honored and revered. Now I'm sure that I've talked before about how the details in some of these stories um, actually show us that this is not just a story written in ancient time, but this is an actual historical account. So these, the little details that we get actually prove that this is, this is written in a different format. It's, it's a historical narrative. Details like this one, however, give us a, a different kind of insight into the very text we read a, each week and a real proof, another proof of their validity. And a lot of people say that the Bible and especially stories about Jesus were invented um, after he died so that the early church could keep their positions of power and, and build their church off of it. One of the accusations lodged against the Bible, in fact, it's the one that I used to use, is that it's a lie made up to establish the power of the church, to reinforce the power of the church. Well, if we just use some regular old logic like Jesus did with the scribes, we can ask a simple question. Why on earth would the leaders of a church, if they were inventing a story, would they include these little details that make them look weak and doubtful? We see Mary and her sons doubting Jesus' sanity. We see all the disciples abandon Jesus at Gethsemane. Peter, the leader, denies him three times in public. The disciples constantly misunderstand his motives and teachings. And as for the resurrection, some of them don't even believe right away. The first witnesses to the empty tomb are women, who in the first century were not considered credible witnesses. So if you're inventing a story to try to build up the perfect religion, you wouldn't use these broken, doubtful, weak characters. You wouldn't show the, the mother of Jesus doubting him. 
So why would you include detail after detail that makes you look bad if you're making up this story? The answer is you simply wouldn't unless it was the actual truth and your main concern was protecting the actual truth about Jesus, who he was, and who he really is. If you believed in the actual truth of Jesus and wanted to protect it no matter the cost, even if it made yourself look bad, then you would keep an account in this way. So just make a mental note. Jesus' family, here having doubts about him, is actually a proof of the validity of the Bible. Apologetics lesson over. But in this paragraph, the second thing that we should take time with is this last in this last paragraph is Jesus' actual teaching. And I think this is yet another difficult saying of Jesus. If we just read through, it looks like he is denying his actual mother and brothers, disowning them maybe for their unbelief. So does he really disown his family here? No, I don't think so at all. He is speaking and has been speaking in metaphors, in, in hyperbole, which the text calls parables. Remember a little while ago it said he began teaching in parables. This is not just a comment made by Jesus. This is a vital part of his teaching. He's trying to show us something. He is showing us as we share in faith, we receive a new family. That family doesn't negate the old, but it does expand it in so many ways. He shows us that a family of believers is as strong a bond as mothers and brothers and sisters. And we who have been in the church for a while know this to be true. Or at least I pray you do. Faith unites us into a family that, that shares more than just common beliefs, but common love, common hope, common faith, common goals. And last but not least, common burdens. That's a picture of what Jesus designed the church to be. He designed it to be a family of brothers and sisters who would love and care for each other on a deeper level than a regular family would. This is one of the things that actually made the early church stand out from everyone else. The early church stood out from the communities that was planted in because the sacrifice, the commitment and love shown to each other as they lived in community over time, it creates a bond that is undeniable and beautiful. We still see that today. This is some of the best news for us because in this life, we are not on our own. Our blood families can abandon us sometimes. That does happen. Jesus taught that those we are linked together with in faith now become a new family. And this is a family that is tied together by his blood, not our own blood. Now, being a pastor of this church for the last seven years now has shown me just how true that is. Because I, I get a unique perspective into the life of the church and I get the privilege of seeing behind the scenes so many times as, as this body of believers surrounds each other through hurt, through joy, and through sorrow. 
time and time again, I have seen so many different ways that you support each other through prayer, acts of service, and just being present with each other. So many meals have been delivered and shared. So many prayers offered. Children babysat, houses even cleaned. What we see in church community when it's healthy is a radically different level of commitment and sacrifice that the world around us doesn't get. It should be weird to them. I've been on the receiving end of this several times before. Last month, when my mom passed away, I got on a plane to leave. Uh, I left my wife and kids grieving here, which was hard, but I also knew that there was no doubt that they would be taken care of and probably wouldn't have to cook for a week. It's hard to put into words how comforting that is. But I don't have to because many of you have also experienced that. Now I know this is a specific congregation. This is a church, one expression of, of the church in this world. And I know it's not the only one that shows radical support and kindness and love for each other. But I do want to call it out. I do see it here. I see it in levels that I have not seen in just about every other church I've been a part of. And I say that not just to to boost our morale. I say that because God is doing something and we should recognize. And when God's doing something, we should recognize and celebrate it. It's worthwhile to, to rejoice in what God is doing. I've seen firsthand the love shown to each other, and I've also seen the the witness that that brings to the community around us. People are supported by their church family and often leaves people outside in the community wondering at why would people be so willing to sacrifice and support each other to the levels that we do here. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And this is why Jesus said in John chapter 13 that our love for each other would be our defining characteristic. That the world around us would know we are his disciples because of the way that we love each other. He said we would be known as his disciples because of our love. And we know that no family on this earth is perfect. We know that no church family on this earth is perfect. But we are tied together by something that is perfect. We're tied together by someone who is perfect. The blood of Jesus does more than unite us to him. Although that would be enough. But the blood of Christ also binds us together as one family. A family tie that's so much deeper than we can express. And in communion, when we take communion every week together, we partake each week, we're partaking both with Christ and with each other. I feel like I've said it many times before, but the act of communion is so deeply personal and deeply communal at the same time. Something we do each on our own and all together. We're fed spiritually with the body and blood of our Savior but we partake together as a body each time. This becomes a family meal that unites us 
in Christ's sacrifice and makes us all brothers and sisters. So as we take some time this morning to come forward and and take communion, I just want to encourage you to look around and see the family that is communing with you. You are not alone. We are in this life together. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you so much for the, the goodness and kindness expressed to us in Jesus in his body and his blood. We thank you that you are a God who who paved the way for us, did not leave us to ourselves. You came and united us to you by your blood. And not just that, you you made a way for us to have community, a family that is, is new in faith, a family that does not abandon, a family that is defined by love. And God, we thank you so much for that. I pray that as we continue the service, we would just take a moment to celebrate the, the joy of having been a part of this family. Yes. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay.